This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello and welcome to your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. You can subscribe to listen to new episodes every Thursday. This week we're getting to know a man who was a king in life and a saint following his death. His name was Edmund the Martyr and he was the last king of East Anglia in the 9th century. He was also the inspiration behind the name of the town Bury St Edmunds in Suffolk, where the abbey founded to host his shrine is itself hosting a new exhibition to share his story with visitors. Joining us now to explore his life, his death and the cult of King Edmund are our two English heritage experts for today. I'm Stephen Brindle and I'm a senior properties historian at English Heritage. Hello, I'm Jess Freeland and I'm an interpretation manager for our brilliant free-to-enter sites. We'll talk to Jess in more detail about the planned exhibition to share Edmund's story with visitors to Bury St Edmund's Abbey. But for Stephen, first of all, let's try to understand more about this former king. When and where was Edmund born? Well, I'm afraid we can't answer either of those questions, Charles. This is really an instance of the idea that the Dark Ages, in some respects, really were quite dark. I suppose revisionist historians have been saying the Dark Ages weren't dark for a long time. But the fact is that our knowledge of the real Edmund, of his historic life, comes down to a single historic reference in the Peterborough text of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle to him being a king of the East Angles, who fought the invading Danes and was defeated and killed by them in the year 869. And that is all. And everything else that we know is hagiography that was invented after his death. So of our knowledge of a real historical character, it can be written in a single line. So in some respects, still really quite dark, I'm afraid. Yes, and you've referred to the Dark Ages there, but do we sometimes call this today a different name as well? Uh, Well, Anglo-Saxon or early medieval, but dark as regards our state of knowledge about huge tracts of it. But we do know that England was invaded by a great Danish army which apparently came to settle permanently. Do we know how and when he became king of East Anglia? No, we don't, Charles. Only that he was quite a young man when he was killed is what the later cult documents tell us. We don't know if that's historically true. We know that East Anglia had been a unified kingdom for a very long time, since the 700s, for well over 100 years. We know that there had been a separate kingdom of Essex, of the East Saxon people, and we know that what we call Norfolk and Suffolk, the North Folk and the South Folk, were settled by a different tribe, the Angles as opposed to Saxons, and we know that they were forged into one kingdom back in the 7th century by a pagan king called Redwald, and we know that there was an earlier king of East Anglia called Sigbert who converted them to Christianity. So we know a bit about the background here. We know that East Anglia had become a unified kingdom well over 100 years previously and that it had been converted to Christianity by a king called Sigbert. This is going to sound like a really basic question to anyone who's English or British or who who knows the country well, but for people who don't know the geography, East Anglia is whereabouts in England? The core is Norfolk, Suffolk 
and Essex, and some people might add Cambridgeshire and Huntingdonshire to that. And this is effectively to the east of London, a little bit to the northeast, northeast. on that yeah. hip of, yeah. uh, of England, which, exactly. which sticks out into the North Sea, effectively. So for anyone in Australia or America listening or anywhere else in the world, that's where it is. Now, what about the early medieval kingdoms in England apart from East Anglia? What about those and how was power shared? Well, back in the 6th and 7th centuries, there were a whole bunch of smaller kingdoms in southern England, like Essex and Kent and Sussex. And they were um, re-snuffed out in the course of the 8th century. And Kent was absorbed into the Kingdom of Wessex, for example. And really, four dominant kingdoms appeared, of which East Anglia was the, the smallest to the south of the River Thames, the Kingdom of Wessex took all the other ones over. In the Midlands, there was a great big kingdom called Mercia, and that was really the dominant power in England through most of the 9th century. And in the north of England, north of the River Humber, there was Northumbria, which means land north of the Humber. So three main kingdoms, Wessex, Mercia and Northumbria, and one smaller one, which is East Anglia, which had held on as an independent kingdom. And so England is divided four ways, really, into these four main kingdoms, each of which had at some stage absorbed smaller kingdoms into itself when it received the most almighty shock in the shape of a succession of raids by Danish and Scandinavian raiders known to history as Vikings. And eventually, in the late 9th century, they came in larger numbers with the apparent, the evident intention of settling. So what was the political situation in England during Edmund's reign? So far as the English were concerned, Northumbria had been the dominant power back in the 7th century, in the time of King Oswald and then of King Oswy, but it had really lost its preeminence. And in the early 8th century, the late 7th, the early 8th century, Mercia became the dominant kingdom under its great king, Offa. And Mercia really remained the dominant king, and the king of Mercia was acknowledged by other English kings in a loose kind of way as the Bretwalder, meaning the, the senior king, the high king. But East Anglia was the only one of the smaller kingdoms which had really remained effectively independent, but clearly overshadowed by Mercia. Uh, what's striking is that it had sustained a separate and independent existence. And I can't quite explain this, because Mercia had extended itself all the way south of the River Thames, and the city of London was founded, or refounded as a Mercian city. So, at any rate, East Anglia was still standing, but then the Danes started landing on the east coast from the Thames estuary, all the way up to the northeast, where they sacked the monastery of Lindisfarne. They'd sacked that first time late in the 8th century. And they went on periodically raiding and pillaging the coast and slaughtering people and taking cattle. But in the 860s, a great army, known as the Great Heathen Army, settled on the coast of East Anglia and marched inland with the evident intention of settling. And they did indeed form a permanent Danish state, a principality 
based in Yorkshire called Principality of Jorvik, which was their name for that city from which the modern name York derives. And among the collateral damage along the way, which uh, was very, very large, was the destruction of the Kingdom of East Anglia and the death of its King Edmund. I see. Obviously, there isn't a huge amount that we know about Edmund, as you've described, but does this, the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle describe how he died? No, just that he fought the invading Danes, was defeated and killed by them. That's one of the texts of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. All the other detail we have is from later accounts written by monks, in particular one written by a French monk, Abbo of Fleury, the Passio Sanctiad Mundi, but that was written a hundred years later in about 985. And so most of the detail we have of Edmund's life is from an account written by a monk a hundred years after his death. So we can say that he at least died in battle. That's something. Yes. And regarding this monk who, who wrote this account, is that where the cult of King Edmund the Martyr stems? No, it is clear from what um, Abbo wrote and from what happened from the formation of the church in Bury St Edmund that a cult had developed after Edmund's death by the year 900 and that Abbo wrote his account because a cult of the dead King Edmund had already emerged. I see. Although we know precisely one line of text about the real historical King Edmund, it is apparent from what happened after his death that not only was he real, but he was regarded as a martyr for the Christian faith, and a whole legend grew up about the circumstances of his death, and had been repeated, had become an oral tradition that was repeated and repeated until Abbo of Fleury wrote it down in about 985. So we can project back a certain amount from what happened later. And regarding Edmund's death, is it stated anywhere where he was buried? Yes, indeed. Well, according to the Passio, to the story which had grown up after Edmund's death and which Abbo then recorded, wrote down for the first time, King Edmund was captured by the Vikings. He was shot full of arrows and then beheaded. And his body was taken by some of his followers to be buried near the place of the battle, a place called Heigelidun, which has recently been identified as a field called Helsden Lee, not very far from modern Bury St Edmunds. And the Vikings, it is said, threw his head into a thicket where it was found. His devoted subjects were looking for his head and they found it guarded between the paws of a ferocious-looking wolf. And the wolf, however, allowed them to take the head because it recognised that they came in peace. And so head and body were reunited and they were buried in a church at this place called Hagelidon, which is probably a field called Helston Lee, about six miles from modern Bury St Edmunds. The way the death has been described there by this uh, French monk, it's a lot more detailed than what we previously had. Yes, that's how legends develop. I mean, there may be elements of truth in it, or it may all just be completely made up. I mean, you do need to bear in mind, Harold, at this age, that Christian faith had not very long displaced pagan religion or elements of paganism in Christianity. And the Christian faith 
had a need for local saints, local martyrs who had a connection with those specific places. And this is something seen in every European country. So although the Christian faith is about events which had taken place in the first century in Roman Syria, in Palestine, every country which became Christian formed, certainly had a need to have its own saints, whether they were incomers who came bringing the faith, like St. Augustine, or whether they were native people who'd converted to Christianity, either led exemplary lives or died for the faith. And this is kind of a universal observation that people need saints, needed charismatic figures who were of their own, of their own community. And I think Edmund is probably best understood as an example of that. He was a king who died in battle and was viewed as an exemplary Christian, and so he became regarded as a Christian martyr. And whether all this was literally true or not is unknowable and slightly beside the point. The point, I suppose, is that it was, this is what was widely believed, generally believed, and once it had been written down, it became, in a sense, true. Yes, and certainly as part of a cult, I suppose in in some respects it was like um, an early medieval proto-PR campaign for the very early Christian church, which was starting to overturn pagan practice. Yes, absolutely. It was uh, a way for the Christian faith to root itself in localities and in communal culture, in local culture, by adopting local figures like Edmund, people with recognisable English names, as martyrs for the faith, as objects of devotion. So it wasn't all just about things that were impossibly distant seeming. Yeah. Who would have appointed him with this saintly title? Well, the incoming Normans in the 11th century did have a problem with a lot of Anglo-Saxon saints who were, shall we say, a little too undocumented for their legal Norman minds. Now, no one appointed Edmund, really. You could say the king appointed himself by being killed in battle as a Christian king fighting pagans and thereby being generally acclaimed as a saint. The Viking great heathen army were themselves driven north, and ultimately their kingdom, the Danish principality in York, was defeated and absorbed into the kingdom of England. But there is a strong element here of the English people needing to reinforce their own identity as a Christian nation assailed by pagans, and needing charismatic figures to rally around as uh, symbols of English identity. And so it's not very surprising that a king who died in battle should be recognised as a Christian martyr. The same thing had happened to St Oswald, Christian king of Northumberland, who died in battle against pagans. Makes perfect sense, doesn't it? And it um, demonises the enemy from over the water. Exactly uh, so. And And assures self-determination. And if the enemy subsequently come on bended knee and convert to Christianity, then so much better, which is one way and another is is what eventually happened. Uh Aha, very interesting. I'm I'm seeing how it all maps out from a psychological perspective now as well. We say in the title of our podcast that uh, he's Edmunds the Martyr and a patron saint. So what patron saint was he? Well, you could certainly say that Edmund was regarded by the English people as a patron saint, king who was English and who was buried locally. 
but it's not quite the same as being the patron saint. Edmund was later joined by St. Edward the Confessor, another Saxon king who became regarded as a saint, although he hadn't been martyred. In due course, they were both overshadowed as English martyrs by Thomas Becket, and they were both supplanted as the saint most commonly adopted as the patron saint of England by St. George, who, of course, has his origins in in what's now Turkey, in, in the Near East, who was adopted by the English as a patron saint probably sometime in the 14th century. So, yes, Edmund, you could certainly say, was regarded as a patron saint, a saint who was specific to England. But what's rather interesting is the way in which he was joined and then supplanted by other English saints, by St Thomas Becket, who was Anglo-French, and St George, who was a Roman soldier who lived in the 3rd century and certainly wasn't English at all. But that is, uh, that's another story. Later on, we get to a stage where Bury St Edmund's Abbey is founded, which is part of this cult of King Edmund, Edmund the Martyr. How and why did that follow on? Edmund's body had been buried at this place called Hagelidun, according to later chronicles, possibly Helsden Lee. But this was a small and obscure chapel in the middle of a field somewhere. And we know that sometime early in the 10th century, possibly as early as 900, which only be 30 years after his death, his remains were moved to a church at Bedricksworth, which was renamed Bury St Edmunds. And a big wooden church was built there, and his remains were reinterred in it and were made a formal object of pilgrimage, a shrine. And there was already a conception in people's minds that saints and the remains of saints should be objects of veneration, objects of pilgrimage. How did followers, these pilgrims, show their devotion when they travelled to pay their respects? Well, pilgrimage to shrines was a major part of medieval religious life. I mean, it could either be a life-changing commitment, like going to Jerusalem or Compostela or Rome, or it could be a long journey to an English shrine, like later the shrine of Becket at Canterbury. But very often in the Middle Ages, it would be a shorter thing, one or two or three days a week, to visit the shrine of a local saint. And England, like most European countries, equipped itself with a good many local saints. And what's striking about Bury St Edmunds is that it's one of the few which really developed a national reputation which people would come great distances to visit, and there are only a handful which fall into that category, like the Shrine of St Alban at St Alban's, the Shrine of St Cuthbert at Durham. And St Edmund's was probably the most popular until the murder of Thomas Becket and the formation of his shrine at Canterbury in 1170. How much power then did Bury St Edmund's Abbey and the general area acquire as a place Uh, of pilgrimage? The community of priests who looked after Edmund's shrine acquired power and wealth because they had a royal saint, which at that time was you know, not quite unique, but a very rare thing to have, and one that had an evident appeal to other kings. And so successive monarchs gave the church 
very generous gifts of property and land and jurisdiction, meaning authority over the surrounding area. And uh, two or three kings are especially significant in here. And one of them is Knut, who slightly ironically is a Danish king who had won the kingdom of England, partly by conquest and by marriage. And Knut went to Bury and he built a new round church of stone to house the shrine and he re-established it as a Benedictine monastery. And the um, next king but two, Edward the Confessor, the last of the Anglo-Saxon kings, he gave the new monastery at Bury authority over an area which became known as Liberty of St Edmund, six hundreds as they were called, which basically meant the whole roughly speaking, western third of the modern county of Suffolk. So that was like their little kingdom, where they had jurisdiction and any money from things like markets and mills, as well as all the church dues, went to the monks, which made them very rich. Uh Did that make uh, people upset about that? Well, I dare say the people living in the area might have become upset over time, because the monks of Berry turned out to be fairly efficient, not to say rapacious managers of their estates, who, if you were being blunt, and if you lived there at the time, you would probably say that the monks of Berry milked West Suffolk for everything they could take. And indeed, there were, on occasions, very serious resistance. But I think that's a later part of our story. So yes, but the people who were upset were mostly the local people who lived in the area and whose labour, to a large extent, kept all this going. How did the Abbey then evolve and what was remarkable about the Abbey? The Abbey's evolution came in in stages as it was given more land by Edward the Confessor. And then after the Norman conquest, an abbot called Baldwin, who was French, very well connected at court, presided over a spectacular increase in its size from 20 monks up to 80. And Baldwin also secured its independence against an attempt by the then Bishop of East Anglia to effectively to take it over by seating uh, the bishopric there. And Baldwin went to Rome and he got an acknowledgement that Bury St Edmund's Abbey was independent of all other churchmen in England and the abbot was supposed to go to Rome thereafter to receive benediction and appointment directly from the Pope. So it received this very special status, and it became very much bigger, and Baldwin presided over a great rebuilding programme, and the abbey became a vast complex of buildings, as well as being the place from which the whole western third of Suffolk and the town of Bury St Edmunds was administered. So it was really a great civil power, as well as a great place of pilgrimage, and it was a great seat of learning, and it had one of the largest libraries, possibly the largest library in England, and it was a great centre of scholarship. How physically large was it then? Very large indeed. The site of the abbey, the abbey precinct, is now a a large public park and a meadow and the modern cathedral of St Edmundsbury and a very large churchyard and several other things. Um, But the abbey church uh, was the third or fourth largest church in all Europe, not just in Britain. It was the same size as St Peter's in Rome, 
being about 515 feet long. There were only two longer churches in existence, and they were Winchester Cathedral and the Abbey at Cluny. If Bury St Edmund's Abbey still stood, it would be probably the second largest of our medieval cathedrals behind only Winchester and comparable to Canterbury and York. It was absolutely vast. Given this size and influence, and we've touched on this slightly earlier, this did lead to some tensions with local people, didn't it? Can you describe how that might have spilled over? Oh, yes, on numerous occasions. In the 1190s, in the reign of Richard I, when there were anti-Semitic riots in much of England, there were Jewish people living in Bury St Edmunds, and there were anti-Semitic riots there, and Abbot Samson, to his disgrace and infamy, refused to give them sanctuary in the abbey, and as a result, the Jewish population of Bury were all murdered at the same time as those in York were. And then in 1327, there was uh, an enormous riot uh, when the abbey was sacked. Most of its buildings were burnt down. Hundreds of livestock were stolen. All of its treasure was stolen by the locals who became so enraged by the monks' rapacious management of the town and the surrounding area. And in 1381, during the Peasants' Revolt, there was a local equivalent called Jack Straw's Rebellion, was the the East Anglian version of the Peasants' Revolt, when the abbey was again attacked and the prior was murdered and a lot of the buildings were very badly damaged again. So the monks weren't exactly regarded as uh, as an entirely benevolent thing by the locals. No, they were, at, at times, they were bitterly resented. Almost um, a precursor for the eventual dissolution of the monasteries by Henry VIII. Yes, um, and this is almost certainly a factor in why Bury St Edmund's Abbey tragically did not survive the Reformation, yes. I see. So what did happen to the Abbey during that period of upheaval by Henry VIII? Well, Bury St Edmund's Abbey had been one of the richest. It was about the fourth richest in England. And it had these vast estates in Suffolk. And there were two great local potentates, the Duke of Norfolk and Duke of Suffolk, who both had their eye on it. And you might have thought that Charles Brandon, the Duke of Suffolk, would have tried to defend Berry because his late wife, his deceased wife, who was herself a princess, Princess Mary Tudor, sister of Henry VIII, had died a few years previously and was actually buried there. So you might have thought the combination of having a royal saint, of having this gigantic cathedral-sized church, um, and of having the king's own sister buried there, who had been married to one of the king's closest advisors and friends, you might have thought this would have reprieved it. And you also might have thought that it would have survived and become a cathedral with a newly created diocese, because that did happen in a number of other places, like Gloucester and Peterborough and Chester and Bristol. None of these places were dioceses in the Middle Ages, and they were great Benedictine abbeys, which became cathedrals, and new dioceses were created for them at the Reformation. It was one of the very few things 
which positive things which came out of the destruction of the monasteries was the creation of what are called the Henrician cathedrals. And you really might have thought that Bury St Edmunds would have become a cathedral for Suffolk and that Reading Abbey would have become a cathedral for Berkshire. But in both cases, the opposite happened. Instead, these abbeys, which were magnificent buildings, were totally destroyed. And this is partly, I think, because Henry's government, led by Thomas Cromwell, really wanted to make very visible statements that the destruction of the monasteries was something permanent and irreversible. It wanted to make examples of them. And I think it's because there were powerful local interests that really wanted their hands on the property that the government wanted to please, in this case, Charles Brandon, Duke of Suffolk. And so down they came, and Mary Tudor's body was moved to the Church of St Mary in the town and reburied there with no kind of memorial, and there she is still. And Bury St Edmund's Abbey was deliberately demolished in what was evidently a very deliberate campaign to strip all the lead and strip all the sellable stonework, and most of it probably ended up in London, with the result that the abbey ruins are pretty fragmentary. What is left of the abbey today as a result of the destruction of Bury St. Oh, this is a sad story, and at this point we need to bring in Jess about what we're doing about it. But basically, of the abbey church, there are the stumps of piers and the bases of walls only, and there are fragmentary remains of some of the other monastic buildings, and there's the outer precinct walls, which divide the precinct, and there are two really magnificent gatehouses, which are the one thing which really give you a strong impression of how grand it all was, the gatehouses, and there's a big chunk of the abbey church at its west end, which remains standing but stripped of all its detail and with six houses built into it, which is quite an odd-looking building. And you look at this very odd-looking building, with, which is now six houses with sort of tiled roofs and things, and you look at it and think that was something like Durham Cathedral or Norwich Cathedral, but it's very difficult to see, isn't it, Jess? Yes, yeah, so bringing Jess into the conversation now, just to remind everybody, just tell everyone again what your job title is, what it involves... Yeah, so I'm an interpretation manager for our brilliant free Twitter sites. So I take the content from our historians like Stephen and our curators and kind of work out the most interesting way to share that information with our visitors. Everything that you've been hearing from Stephen, you've had to effectively condense into some pieces of information yeah. to pass on to, to visitors. What are the plans to tell this story? So... We've been working with the Abbey of St Edmund Heritage Partnership, which is a group of local organisations, and they're really working to get more people interested in the story of St Edmund. So originally, there'd been lots of activity planned for their millennium anniversary in 2020, which was a thousand years after King Knut built the first stone church on the site that Stephen mentioned earlier. And so he re-established it as a monastery. Obviously, because of COVID, we've had to push the celebrations back to this year. And English Heritage have been working on a new permanent exhibition around the site as part of this. What sort of form will this exhibition take? And what's been the process of creating it? 
So we did lots of visitor surveys last year to really get to grips with what's currently missing and what people want to know more about. And the main issue is that people aren't even getting a basic understanding of of what's been lost. Some visitors might walk through the Abbey Gardens and not even realise that you've got a, a ruined Abbey right there. So we're going to be installing information panels at key locations around the the former Abbey site. And this is both within the Abbey Gardens and beyond. And we've been yeah really trying to work to help visitors understand that these fragments of rubble walls were actually a part like a thriving centre of life really. So hundreds of people were were living and working here and visiting, like even kings and queens and hundreds of pilgrims. I think sometimes there's like these misconceptions that these religious sites were quite solemn places, but actually it was a, a real centre of activity. So hopefully we're, we're being able to convey that. And a key part of being able to show it as a centre of life is this new reconstruction artwork that we've been working really hard on. And it's all stemmed from the standing ruins that you can see today. And these were all digitally scanned and combined with meticulous research by Stephen to create this new kind of digital model that we're taking this breathtaking artwork from really. And it really helps you understand the scale of what is lost and really helps you bring it to life. Um, So I think that will be a really exciting part for visitors to, to see and engage with. Are you able to say at the moment how visitors will see your research when they arrive? Will there be information panels? Um... Yeah, so this reconstruction artwork will be all over the site on information panels, uh, key locations, kind of really helping people, drawing people in to the site and, and making them realise that there's perhaps a bit more to be seen there. I see. They will get a sense then that this was a really large place and with tall buildings as well, I expect, and not just these sort of quite low-lying ruins. Oh, definitely. And I think... Stephen mentioned the cathedral earlier and I think that really adds to people's confusion today is that you kind of see this huge great church still standing and some people might think that that's the lost abbey church but actually no there was an even bigger church right here and so using that as a comparison and and yeah like I say using this artwork to really bring this to life. Stephen how much research have you had to do to create these new displays? Well, this has been a complicated one, Charles. At English Heritage, we do a lot of reconstruction drawings, and I've worked on a lot, but this is the most ambitious and complex we've ever done, because you're starting from what on the face of it is very fragmentary evidence to rebuild something which was absolutely vast. Think of one of our our biggest medieval cathedrals, um, and it's sort of on that scale, with a vast precinct of buildings around it. So we've studied the remains on site, we've looked at the salvaged stonework that was excavated from it that's in our archaeological stores and elsewhere. We had a modern digital survey, so we have very accurate survey data of what still survives on the site. We've used historic views and the records of archaeological work done on site and the comparative evidence places like Norwich Cathedral and we put all that together and our wonderful colleague Carlos is making a 3D digital model and we have another colleague called uh, Bob Marshall who makes the final views. So really it's a collaboration between Jess and me and Carlos and Bob and we've been consulting with a lot of other historians about points of detail and consulting with the Perry Heritage Partnership's own research group because they're very knowledgeable so it's a collaborative venture with a lot of people involved as as these kind of projects usually involve. 
Mm. So you're you're a bunch of time detectives, really, in a way, working in different um, fields. Um, that's uh, that's very nice of you to say so. Yes. Have you acquired a lot of new knowledge as a result of sort of measuring things and trying to interpret your findings? Uh, Yes, I think we can claim that we have. This is the first serious attempt to reconstruct Bury St Edmund's Abbey archaeologically. There have been a couple of of what you might call artists' impressions. Quite often when you see a reconstruction drawing of a historic building, it's really an artist's impression. It's something that is loosely the same, the right sort of shape and size, but it's not really based on an accurate analysis of evidence. And what we're trying to do here is an archaeological reconstruction based on archaeological evidence. So we think, although you can't be sure about the detail and the broad outlines, we think it will be sort of 95% correct for the Abbey Church. Fascinating. What are some of the surprising elements that even local people who live nearby and perhaps walk their dogs through there or take their children for a walk or something might appreciate when they come across these new information panels? Well, we've already shown local stakeholders some early drafts. And yes, there is surprise astonishment, really, at how magnificent it is, I think in a sense of shock. They, there should have been something looking like Norwich Cathedral in the middle of their town, which was lost to them. I think there are mixed feelings, really, aren't there, Jess? But a lot of pride, but also regret. Yes, huge. And, and it's just wanting to share that as well. So the people mm-hmm. that do know a little bit about it, just kind of wanting more people to be able to appreciate it and, mm. and, and understand that. I think there's, yeah, definitely that, that sense as well. Yeah, there's a real story there, isn't there? Because it's the lost cathedral, you know. It's the lost cathedral city, in a way. You might say that it is England's lost cathedral city. That is, even though it does actually have a cathedral, that would be a very good way of putting it, Charles, because it's certainly not what it was. You might say it was a cultural crime scene because this was a deliberate piece of destruction to Mm. make a political, religious point. Yes, So as we sort of wrap things up for this episode about Edmund the Martyr, was Edmund unusual in being both a king and a saint? Almost, but not quite unique. There are two others in England, St Oswald, King of Northumbria, and St Edward, Edward the Confessor, the last Saxon king. And Edward the Confessor's shrine at Westminster Abbey is still there, although it's reconstructed after the Reformation, but yet highly unusual, though not unique. When are the new information boards telling this story about Edmund going to be installed at the Abbey and when can people see them? Yeah, so we're we're just putting the the final touches to these reconstruction images, but we hope that by summer, around June or July, the new exhibition will be installed. So Mm. check the website close to the time for the exact date. But yeah, please, please do come and have a look if you can. And just to mention, if I haven't already, that it's it's totally free, like a lot of our sites, which I think is just brilliant. So mm. you can have a really lovely day out in the Abbey and exploring Bury, which is a really nice place to go. Mm. Absolutely. Lots of layers of history to go through, definitely, on a nice spring or summer's day. Finally, does Edmund's life or death or sainthood live on in any other buildings, statues or images in Bury St Edmunds? Yeah, I think that's what's quite remarkable about it really is that once you start looking for these signs, you kind of start seeing Edmund everywhere <laughs> in Bury. So there's like loads of public arts in like more obvious places like the cathedral to the middle of roundabouts, for instance. 
And it might be a more literal representation of St. Edmund, like there's a beautiful sculpture by Elizabeth Frink, but others are more of just a nod to his cult, such as like the wolf that is thought to have guarded his head. And it's obviously in like the heraldry of the town and, and, and Suffolk. And it's even like in the logo of the huge brewing firm, Green King. Um, which is based in Mm. St Edmunds. And so their logo is a crown with two arrows crossing through it, which symbolises Edmunds' martyrdom. So it kind of means that Edmunds' cult, like images of his cult, whether you realise it or not, are kind of on beer taps across the country. So his legacy is living on in that way, really. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we'll be uncovering the history of Ranger's House and the work involved in preparing it for its starring role in Bridgerton. Well, a shoot of this size, you know, you can have a crew of up to 150 people. You can have a nearby unit base. It is a a small moving village, if you like. Thanks for listening. See you next time.